Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This week on the podcast, I recorded a conversation with my friend Dylan about his book, That's What Iceland Is For. And so maybe some of you have already heard of this book because of it getting mentioned by Brian and Lexi on uh, their podcast, Bright Hearth. Or maybe you've never heard of it before, but either way, I think you will really like this interview as we not only talk about his book, but just other things related to economics and Christianity that all kind of tie around a kid's book that he wrote. And that's right, a kid's book that talks about Christianity and economics. So I think this is a book that if you're looking for books to get for your young kids that you should really consider this one. And I will drop a link to where you can buy it in the description of this episode. All right, I'm here with my friend Dylan, and he's the author of the book, uh, That's What Iceland Is For. So Dylan, why don't you give a bit of an introduction about yourself to everyone listening? I am a uh, 31-year-old author from central Oklahoma. I am a uh, Christian, um, and I attend Sunnyside Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, um, under Pastor Michael Deerham and a plurality of elders. We are um, three boys deep at this point, uh, me and my wife, Heather. I have a son named Killian and a son named Cohen. Uh, and then our youngest, who has just turned five months yesterday, his name is Charlie. I graduated from the University of Oklahoma with a professional writing degree uh, with a specialty in producing genre fiction. I have since tried to unlearn as much as possible from that degree, um, but all the while maintaining a love and a desire to write fiction and to write stories um, that people enjoy, can um, learn from, but most of all uh, see God's glory through because of their love of the narrative that they find in the Bible. That's really cool. Yeah, and that's that's a little bit about where the this comes from. It was we wrote. I wrote this in a time where um, I was kind of losing work, as it were, in in two areas. And uh, I wrote it the first time, and I had all the art direction the first time. I sent it to my wife's cousin Dinah, who illustrated the book, and she brought back. Um, illustrations that were 10 times as good as the text. So I just tabled the text for about two years. <laughs> I didn't touch it. Um, and I knew it wasn't up to snuff and it looked like the, um, text was serving the illustrations. And I think that was backwards. So I thought in order to do it justice, I would have to eventually rewrite it. And so this past summer I did rewrite it. Um, and knowing now what I know about poetic structure, um, it's what caused me to rewrite it and write it the way that I did. Um, 
And if you will look at the rhyme scheme, it's kind of chiastic in nature where all the rhymes are repeated. And even sometimes the words are repeated in concentric circles from middle out. And in doing so, I, one of the things I kind of wish I would have done with the structure is to put it in eight, six meter, kind of like a Baptist hymn, which I'm really wanting to do from here on out is uh, take meters that are um, found in hymns and psalters uh, that are traditionally found in the church. That way to a child's ear, when their parents read these, they hear something familiar. Um, and it's a lyrical quality that is going to draw them to it again and again because it's already in their culture that they show up to every single Sunday. Um, but as far as the language goes, we can go over a little bit of that since this is the honor money, if you want to do that. Yeah. Before we get into that, I think I want to talk about the uh, poetry side a little bit more. So did you grow up reading poetry, writing poetry, or is that something you got into when you were getting that degree? I actually uh, grew up, I grew up um, like most children of our generation in public schools um, but I did have a draw toward poetry and I did have a draw um, toward specifically structured poetry. So whenever we would come up against guys like Whitman, who is slightly structured, but it's a lot looser, it was more um, frustrating for me. So when I come across someone like Kipling or just the other day, I was reading some Robert Louis Stevenson who had some childhood poetry and his is a lot more structured than you would find um, some of the more um, modern writers and their their structures are much more easy to follow and it's it's pleasing to the eye but it's also pleasing to the ear and um those those types of poetries are the their structures in poetry are the ones i'd like to emulate going forward that's cool i didn't grow up writing poetry or anything like that i first threw my hand at writing some poetry um, about a year ago and that was really thanks to the influence of jason farley i don't know if you're familiar with him um is he a part of the Fight, Last, Fight, Laugh, Feast network out there in um, Moscow? He's not a part of it, but he's guest on there a lot because he's friends with them and he's a part of lore. Okay. I think that may be why the, the name rings true. Um, and maybe a, maybe one other thing that I'm thinking of, it might have been him. But uh, yeah, I, I'm familiar with the name at least. That's why it, when you said it, it, it made sense. Um, but I one of the one of the things about poetry, which kind of... Uh, is a part of my past is country music. So um, my dad's from Southeastern Oklahoma and our family has thrived on storytelling and song and a lot of country music has been, and mostly the older country music, nothing, <laughs> nothing new to be honest. Um, but most of the older country music is something that I fall back on as very fond and nostalgic memories. Um, so that that type of poetry and storytelling combination uh, is something that is maybe may, maybe what you see behind uh, the way that I write poetry. Maybe that's cool. Yeah, I was born in Detroit and grew up in southeastern Michigan, but grew up on country music. And some people find that kind of amusing. No, I have a, I have a cousin from Southern California, and she's like the same way. She was, and we're talking like uh, beach bum. Southern California. She she went to the beach every day of her life. Um, but for some reason, there's like a big country music fan base where she grew up in Southern California. Hmm. But like you, I don't really keep up with it anymore. I don't really like I don't really know country music singers newer than like Lee Bryce. And I don't even think he makes music anymore. 
So being being a part of like the Austrian economics and um, reading loads of um, economic thought, the first thing that comes to mind for me is what has happened to country music is it's gone fiat, right? It has it has been diluted or it has been um, so overprinted that you don't have um, the real hard and and earned song and storytelling like you used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially like your older stuff, like, you know, Johnny Cash and some of the other people when you're thinking of like 70s, 80s, where it was really just storytelling. Right, right. Or gospel, right? Like, so you have like, you have Johnny Cash and Elvis, they're they're doing their storytelling, but they are also like producing gospel albums on the backside. Like a lot of people don't remember or think about that. Um, they were they were also still doing gospel music for quite a long time. Johnny Cash up until his death, you know. Yeah, well. Douglas Wilson's commentary in Revelation is named after Johnny Cash's song from Revelation. So right when the man comes around, I read it yeah. to my wife a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and we were kind of sitting around talking about it. And then she goes, "Wait, where did the title come from?" And uh, I told her, "You know, it's a it's a Johnny Cash title." Mm-hmm. But anyways, enough about all of that, and more about your book. So you kind of gave the story behind the book. You wrote like the kind of the first rendition of it a couple years ago and then you rewrote it this year so i don't know how much you want to talk about the book and how much you want to leave a little bit of a mystery for the listener to try to uh, encourage them to go buy it but um yeah uh, let's go into that so what do you want to say about the book to get people intrigued on and about it and uh, i don't know tell them about it uh, so in 2021, I went down the rabbit hole for um, Austrian economics and uh, currencies um, and even even a lot of the uh, talk around praxeology or human action, and um, especially when it comes to time preference. Um, and I was noticing trends about how Austrians talked about time preference and the way that the Bible deals with economics and deals with currencies or um I would say money, how it how it understands money, uh, and finding very deep correlations between the two. Not perfect, right? Like we don't think it's we don't think Austrian economics is biblical economics, but it's a lot closer than Keynesian, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot co- closer than Keynes. It's a lot closer than Marx. It's a lot closer than um, modern monetary theory. Uh, monetary theory, like it's it's a lot closer than just about anything else we can come up with in uh, secular study about economics, but. Um, I went I went down the, the rabbit hole a little bit um, in Austrian economics and um, started learning more of these terms, more how they are uh, not just not just pressed upon the uh, the economy, but they're kind of lifted, if you will, from the economy. Like they get these uh, concepts by watching and observing human action. And um, I, I started seeing these trends in story. I started seeing these trends in fiction um, and how exchange works within fiction and how we understand value specifically. And that's what this book is largely about. I was thinking a lot about value between the, the years of 2021 and this summer and coming to conclusions about extrinsic value versus intrinsic value and what uh, objects in the world, what objects in God's creation hold extrinsic value or hold intrinsic value. Um, and so I wanted to really highlight that in the book. And it it comes about in the climax when um, the 
main characters are having to come up against a hard decision of whether to value intrinsic value over extrinsic value. Um, and they, they have to go with intrinsic value based on the incentives that they have. But it, it, what it does is that decision <clears throat> leads them to a right ordering of understanding about God's world, a, a right ordering of understanding of God and how he has done these things. And then, and only then can they properly have an understanding of production and then consumption or, um, intrinsic value and extrinsic value. Yeah. And I like how, when you were talking about that, after I read it, you said, uh, you pointed out that you as the narrator of the book, the only time, uh, that you as a narrator really condemns the main character is when he at first chooses that which has extrinsic value over that which has intrinsic value and then he rightly understands his mistake and switches on it right so um there's two two main characters little viking and little shield maiden and throughout the entire narrative um little vikings horde is growing and how that horde is growing we can we can only speculate um him being a viking but i don't um i don't ever want to uh try to infuse any sort of inherent um bad or wrong within uh, the idea of gaining and storing value i think gaining and storing value is prudence i think it's what it teaches us to do when we're supposed to um, leave an inheritance to the third and fourth generation that we're storing up our time we're storing up our energy and efforts in order that our children and our children's children may enjoy many of the fruits from it but not only that that they may also um go out and store up more value and store up more time for their descendants as well and this is this is like the basis of what we understand is um, free markets <clears throat> and how free markets are supposed to allow the building blocks of society families to store up wealth over time and and leave something for their children to start a life on and not just live off of or consume up that um consume up that uh, inheritance but to use it and i think that maybe another thing that you know either our generation or the generations before us have started to lose sight of inheritances and what are they for? Are they for consuming? Are they for having an easy life? Or are they for usage? Are they for going out and building something to the glory of God? And I think we would both agree toward the latter. But it, you know, in in the broader culture, we are seeing something completely different. Um, but the, these two main characters, they go out and they store wealth. And over time, he's getting he's gaining a, a greater and greater uh, hoard or a greater amount of wealth. Um, that is slowly tipping the boat that they're using to go out and find uh, a, a suitable place to store this hoard. Um, but never did I really once want to ever assume that this is a bad thing to gain wealth and store it. Yeah, like you said, you don't show how they're gaining their wealth. So, you know, we can say they're Vikings. Maybe they're gaining their wealth by a very immoral means or maybe he's you know, you can leave up your imagination. Maybe you can assume something more honorable that as he's, you know, taking his boat from place to place, he's kind of doing more of your uh, trader, trapper type, buying and selling different places. But whatever it is, you're showing that, like, it's not wrong that he's accumulating until he put, puts the uh, accumulation of his money over what has intrinsic value. 
Right. And I, and well, that's maybe one of the things that, um, I don't know how, how you view economics in the church today. Um, but one of the things that I see is a misunderstanding of what is extrinsic and what is intrinsic value or what two things hold those, um, those values and how we understand value. Um, because I, I hear a lot of talk about gold having intrinsic value. I think what a lot of people mean is gold holds properties or they ha- intrinsic within gold holding properties that make it a good or a hard money. Um, but as far as intrinsic value goes, I, I leave that to what God has created in his image. And I leave that to God himself um, to determine that which has tr- intrinsic value. And then what we put place value on, um, what we place value on in the market, whether it's goods or commodities, um, services, or um, whatever, whatever else we may put value on, that's extrinsic value that we're placing on those objects or on those services. Yeah. And the, what you were saying there, I think you're kind of getting at something that Gary North has, had talked about because he, as a free market capitalist, theonomist guy, he he lines up a lot with Austrian economics, but he has some criticisms of it sometimes. And in his uh, The Dominion Covenant book, he was saying how um, there is actually objective value because God assigns value to everything. So the objective value to something is the value that God has given to it. And then the subjective value that we as humans place on an item given supply and demand in different circumstances that arise are like our made in the image of God way of giving value to something in the way that God has given it objective value. Right. That way we're always treating his creation properly, um, but we're not um, we're not uh, it's it's not below us to in order to trade at different prices at different in different times for that those very things we're supposed to treat properly. Mm-hmm. So, how much of Gary North have you read thus far? Um, I've read a little bit of some of his commentaries. I haven't read as much of him as I would have liked to, but I'm slowly getting there. Where would so like I've I've read his um his proposition on uh what is it like evangelism, um and the way that it works kind of in a like decentralized uh, manner, and it looks like little nodes going out and creating new nodes around um, and, but all connected to a larger network. Um, And because I think it was either uh, Jordan Bush or somebody else sent it to me. And I was like reading, I was reading that and looking at it comparison to the Bitcoin network and the correlations were kind of like creepy um, Mm -hmm. because of what I was looking at and what I knew about um, the Bitcoin network and seeing that I was, I was kind of, intrigued but i never got around to reading him yet because you know mises is, i'm slogging through like a thousand pages over there um mm-hmm. you know, five six pages at a time but um i really want to get around to north because like you said if somebody can point out uh the areas where they have disagreement with the austrians and why the austrians struggle in certain areas i i'd like to see what those are and if they're the same conclusions that i've come to as well yeah um my wife and i were going for a walk just a few hours ago and you know typical talk for a walk right that that was a joke but i was talking about austrian versus keynesian economics and how uh i would say austrian is the closest to biblical economics of any secular system of economics and like it'll have some disagreements with what i would see as like a theonomic biblical view of economics but it comes closer than anything else does right it's it's just not it's not dealing with the it's not dealing with the presuppos- presuppositional set of worship. 
I think. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what 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 does each member in the market worship? Um, and from there, that that usually determines what they produce and consume. And that's more how I see us being able to study praxeology or human action is more based on what what does what do the individual actors in the market worship, um, and then it flows out from there. And I'm sure to a certain degree you probably agree with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense there. I think the way you're wording that. Yeah, um, if you want to read more Gary North, if you go on his website, he has all of his books for free PDF download. Yeah, and I, I, my pastor said something about that not too long ago. And I, but where would you think to start? Maybe where would you probably suggest to start for somebody who hasn't read much of him? Um, he has a book called The Dominion Covenant, which is an economic commentary on Genesis, and that one would probably be a good one. I mean, Genesis is always a good place to start, and he does a lot of laying groundwork there. He basically just went through the Bible and wrote commentaries that focus on the economic aspect. So because I focus on the economic aspects, he'll skip sections. It might be like he covers, you know, chapter 18, but then skips to chapter 22 of whatever book he's in because the in-between chapters didn't concern economics too much. But then sometimes he'll pull out of something uh, like, oh, I didn't even realize how this passage of scripture actually did relate to economics. That sounds like something that sounds exactly what I need. Um, I'm I've been thinking from creation uh, about economics um, recently, and that's that's something I needed I need to grab. Then, so I appreciate that quite a bit. And that's what I try to do is have kind of an interplay between in the book creation and economics, and or um, how do we store up wealth with you know all the risks at hand, oceans, um, creatures pirates because <laughs> we we still deal with pirates today they just give us phone calls or emails <laughs> right <laughs> there's a there's a new sea to surf uh or a new sea to travel and that's usually the internet um but we're we're dealing with pirates all the time we're dealing with um decay we're dealing with sin in the world uh and that's what we're we're storing up wealth kind of against um and i was trying to somewhat deal with that subject as best as I could for a a children's book. And like I said, on the back of the book, this is a a, a vocabulary expander. And I didn't say who the vocabulary expander was for, because I had a lot of people who did test reading for me, a lot of parents, and they were like, I was picking up a dictionary. And I didn't, I didn't really mean for that to be the case. But if that's, if that's what's happening in order for them to explain to their children, because their children are asking the question, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and one, one of the reasons I, I give for that is, um, most of the, most of the Dr. Seuss or most of the nursery rhymes that you know, or you've memorized, do you know what all the words mean? Um, and a lot of them have said no. Well, and Dr. Seuss, you're not supposed to know what they mean because they really probably don't have any meaning, but in other nursery rhymes, you don't know because you don't have the context for it. Well, that's kind of what this is this book is, is it's it's putting you in a, um, a language set that's more economic and you're not used to it. And so if you can go and find all six words that I use for gold coinage, and you can look through a dictionary and find the definitions for that, I've just expanded your knowledge about the gold coin or the history of the gold coin. Not, not to, not to a huge degree, but enough to, uh, keep you curious and 
have brightened your day a little bit, hopefully. So that was one of my one of my goals with the the vocabulary as well. I do have to say, when I was reading through it the first time, and I'm reading it out loud, and my wife's sitting there with me so she can hear it, and I'm reading it to uh, our daughter who's about to be a year old, and I get to the word Vikingine. And I like have to stop for a second and think, how do I pronounce this? Yeah, Vikingly. Yeah, uh, Viking. Well, not Vikingly. And... After Vikingly, okay. you say Viking in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess that was uh, um, one of the one of the places I took I took liberty into uh, word creation. And... I was going to say I don't think Vikingin is a word, but maybe it was. I had just never heard of it before. It is now, right? <laughs> and I, I. Um... I did that uh, just as a. I've been reading a lot on Shakespeare as well, or who the um, actually the authorship question behind Shakespeare, and did a little bit of study on how many words Shakespeare had actually created because of his broad knowledge of uh, languages, and it is absurd. And um, I thought, why not toss a few of my own into this one? Yeah, I remember in a high school English class. It was talking about the word Shakespeare created that some of us still use every day. And bedroom was one of them. Like the word bedroom didn't exist before Shakespeare. Right. Yeah. Like very, very simple. Like linguistic constructions that are, like you said, every day are common use and weren't around just 400 years ago. And I think Tyndale is the same way, right? What was Tyndale was known for a, a vast amount of theological language that we use today. Um, he had created that uh, whenever, whenever he translated the Bible into, into English. Yeah, I've heard uh, Wycliffe himself spelled his last name differently at different points in his life because prior to him and the people shortly after him that really did a lot to standardize English, prior to like Wycliffe and those guys, English wasn't really standardized and there were just multiple spellings that were all accepted for a lot of words. Right. Maybe that's Wycliffe that I'm thinking of, not not Tyndale. But yeah, yeah, Wycliffe is uh, spelling is something that can be infuriating whenever you're trying to read it in the original text. I have a, a few. Um, I have a, a book of George Herbert's and there's a, a couple of like the same word, just a poem later. And it's spelled differently than it was in the poem just before. And I don't know how like far apart he wrote them. But like you said, that is just. Uh, have, not having it standardized, we're we're kind of in our now standardized English. We're a little bit spoiled, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And even now, we still have some words that are like technically multiple accepted spellings. Like it's actually okay to spell judgment with an e in it, but just most of the time people don't, and generally you spell it without it. Right, or flavor, or favor. You know the 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 multiple endings for for those as well. We can blame the English for that, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to your book, one thing I really liked in it is after the climax in the book, it, you could have very easily gone from there to do like uh, this Ronald Sider. Uh, he's the guy that wrote Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, basically saying that like wealth is bad unless you're using it to support the poor. You could have very easily gone that direction and basically been like, now that this uh, climactic tragedy has happened, they're very righteous now. But Instead, you went with it in a different approach of uh, at the end, you say that um, that they can live a rich life indeed. So you're not just like condemning wealth, but you're saying wealth with the right attitude towards God behind it. 
Right. And and sometimes um our our relationships with wealth as Christians can can make us feel guilty. Um, or we are sometimes made to feel guilty about wealth within the church. Um, and sometimes that's because of excesses of the past, maybe, uh, or current, um, uh, maybe even current, um, what are they called? Health and wealth preaching, prosperity mm-hmm. gospel stuff. Um, so we can, we can kind of try to separate ourselves from those sorts of doctrines, uh, wicked doctrines because of that icky feeling that we have from that. But there is a right relationship that we should have to wealth. I mean, our Lord gave the parable of talents um, and the amount of wealth that's spoken about in that parable is uh, enormous, whether people know it or not. And he didn't shy away from that. Um, And it was a good thing. In fact, it was a good thing to double that wealth whenever he gave it out. Um, And when we think about wealth, it should be more thought on um, along the lines of responsibility as as Christ has um, laid out for us in that parable. And he in in this climax, he has his wealth taken away um, like Job, not not completely like Job, but like Job, he has most of his possessions, most of his earthly goods taken away from him. And it seems desolate, right? They're just on a boat. They're floating around. Their wealth is gone. Um, but now they're brought to a rich, rich land. Uh, a land where wealth can be created and stored and um, maybe gold can be found as well in this land. And I think when the Lord decides to dump your gold stack into the ocean so he can gold he or he can gild his ocean floor so he can he can look at it, but no one else. Um, he's going to he's going to give you much more um, on the backside of that. And that's not a. um a prosperity gospel thing, but it is attesting to the Lord's faithfulness to those who, um, who love him, who, who return to right order of worship, which is kind of what I'm trying to do in the last three or four pages is show a return to right order of worship. And then an understanding of God's creation that is rightly ordered in order so that we can produce and consume in the same manner. Yeah. When the Bible condemns rich people, it's condemning rich people who, acquire their riches in sinful manner and sinful ways, or they use their riches to abuse people like the using your riches to abuse people. I'm thinking of uh, the people in James five, the acquiring your riches in evil ways. I'm thinking of uh, some of the people in Judea in the first century that Jesus condemned where they basically through political favors and what we today call crony capitalism or capitalism for short, <laughs> how they got rich. Some people think this is why Jesus condemned the rich young ruler because for a man to be wealthy and so young, especially knowing things we know about the first century Judean economy today, probably means the rich young ruler got so rich from political favors and stuff like that. But then you look at other people in the Bible and you see Abraham was rich. Isaac inherited his dad's money. So Isaac was rich. And we know Jacob basically lost all the money when he fled to his uncle. And then he became rich from scratch over again. And then David, if you look at the money that David donated or dedicated to the temple, if you were to count out how much all that silver and gold would be worth today, it's like $200 billion. Like David would be as wealthy as Elon Musk with just the money he donated to the building of the temple. Yeah, it's it's mind-boggling the amount of wealth that has uh, went through the hands of um, all of God's people across time, 
Um, and he, even if you look at Solomon and his his great wealth, though um, it, it became somewhat of a snare, I would say that uh, what we see in Solomon's life is that his wives were more of a snare than his wealth was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and not 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 to say that that amount of wealth uh, didn't didn't have its own snares to it, um, but um, we we definitely see highlighted the idolatry that comes with multiplying wives um, and multiplying horses um, and. Um, he might have even been guilty of um, money printing or uh, inflation by flooding the market with silver shekels. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly where that's at, but my pastor and I had a silver is plentiful as stone. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and and he was able to use all that silver to to flood the market with it and buy up horses in return. And now you have a deflated currency, but he has all the horses, right? It's it's kind of the classic uh, U.S print money and then take all the resources kind of a, a methodology. Um, and so that not, not that that's a, a good thing at all, but um, he had those capabilities because of the great wealth that the Lord had entrusted to him is as the, the head and King of Israel. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, as far as um, the book goes, I um, haven't been, promoting it greatly or widely just because of time and monetary constraints here in the household. So I'm very grateful for you to afford me some time with your, your own podcast. I know how much effort goes into that. I've seen how much effort goes into that and to do it on your own is um, something that I don't know how, how much time you actually have to even allot to that because we do it as a group at church and we, you know, we're spending like three or four hours together and we have um, divided up all the labor and you're taking it on all on yourself. So I'm I'm very thankful that you were um, willing and uh, excited to, to have me on for this because it's not it's not a big book. It's not a well-known book, um, but I thought it aligned well with the honor money. And I've enjoyed listening to your episodes in the past, um, especially about um, Austrian economics or biblical economics. And I thought we aligned really well theologically and, uh, economically, um, in our understanding of those things. So I wanted to kind of have the chance and also give you the chance to talk about this book because it did have a lot of, um, monetary thought and economic thought inlaid. Yeah. I love this book and I think it's a good book for listeners to, buy or maybe buy a few copies that way when they have a friend that's got a baby shower they can give them a copy of the book to read to their kids because yeah it's good to have uh, books you can read to younger kids that have a a good biblical message and it's not just you know the same dr seuss books over and over again you know whatever dr seuss books you can still find they're all being canceled for being racist or something right and i mean that may be the the best way i've pitched this book so far to everybody is is just a children's book without funny business um, because any more, when you get it from like one of the big three or four publishers, you basically have to look out for funny business or you have to, you have to vet it first. And, um, I don't like that we live, uh, in, in a time where that's the case, um, though you should be, you should be vetting just about everything, but if you have to like really truly vet it and waste money on something, or you don't have a way to understand um, some of the ideas behind the book beforehand, but then you get it and you go, this is garbage. <laughs> I, I hate when that, that happens. Uh, and you kind of have to, to push a, either a gift or a, um, a book that you've bought off to the side just because 
it's not going to be helpful and and it's not going to be fruitful or edifying for your child. And so I was hoping to do something that was both pleasing to the eye and pleasing to the ear for the kids, um, but not just them, but the parents. Um, I think one of the audiences that's always forgotten in children's books are the parents uh, and for them to be uh, to have an enjoyable experience while reading is uh, almost as paramount as for the children, because if the kids want to read it again and again, but the parents don't, the parents are going to find a way to hide it. But mm-hmm. if the parents want to read it over and over again with the children, now you have something that um, is serving both neighbors that are reading it. Yeah, for sure. Um, is Amazon the best place for people to buy this or do you have a website for it? Uh, Amazon's the only place right now. I don't have a website set up for it and I'm doing it through Kindle direct publishing uh, because I don't, I don't have a publisher outside of them. And um, I'm, this is really just my first swing at a, a children's book. I've, I've done, um, as we've talked about before, I've done a lot of other stuff and I've, I've got some short stories um, that are published in pretty obscure magazines or, or pretty obscure um, publications here and there. Uh, but I haven't, haven't finished uh, a novel that I think is polished or mature enough in order to to send out to anybody um so and i've I've really enjoyed structuring poetry for children and structuring poetry for these books all right so that was that interview with dylan if you liked it and you're interested in the book then check out the amazon link there in the description it's not an affiliate link or anything like that so i don't get any kickback for it i just think this is a good book and uh, with all the horrible books out there pagans are writing it can be good to support christian authors writing a good literature for our kids that teaches not just christian principles but actually you can talk about economics with this one and get your kids to learn about economics from a young age so check out that link buy a copy of the book maybe even buy a few copies that way uh, when a couple at church has a baby shower for their next kid you can give them this book as a gift or one of your gifts for their baby for their baby shower and uh, Dylan also uh, wanted me to say that a share and a review go a long way. So give the, the book a positive review on Amazon. If you think it deserves a positive review, if you don't think it deserves a positive review, then just don't give it one. Only give it a review on Amazon if you think it deserves a positive review. And uh, mention it on Facebook or Twitter slash X or as Gabe Hughes calls it, Twix for short. And uh, yeah, just get the word out there and support this Christian brother writing a good kids book and maybe more to come from him in the future maybe i'll have him on in a future episode talking about the next kid book kids book he writes here in a couple years so that was this episode of uh, theana money that was this week's episode of theana money as we go i want to remind everyone that the law of the lord is perfect sure right pure clean and true so go apply that law in light of the gospel of christ's atoning death and resurrection That's an important part there. We are not Old Testament Jews. We are New Testament Christians living after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Say
Oh, you.